0: spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing you the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button.
1: John Heater and Alison Stoner lend their voices to Huevos, Little Rooster's Excellent Adventure, an animated feature about a rooster who must fight to save his home after it's threatened by an evil rancher. It's now playing on demand. Also playing on demand is Amy, a deeply moving documentary about the Grammy-winning artist Amy Whitehouse, her incredible talent, and her tragic demise.
0: The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house.
1: From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer.
0: And I'm Allison Wilmore, and this is the 100th episode of Film Spotting SVU. You know something, Udovich? This might just be our masterpiece, and that's because we're going to review Quentin Tarantino's war film, *Inglorious Bastards.
1: Would you please stop calling me Yudovich? No. Fine. No cue shots on this episode, because with December upon us, it is once again time for the Svuvie Awards. Mm. Where we look back on the year that was in movies and give our signature strange awards on everything from the films we loved... And everyone else hated the movies we hated that everyone else loved and lots, lots more, including a few categories suggested by the real heroes, you, the film spotting SVU listeners. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable. In which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. And Allison, it is your turn to lead the discussion. What are our picks this time? Well,
0: I've got three really interesting films, and they are all available now on demand. The first up is Breathe. This is the second film as a director from Melanie Laurent, who is the star of this week's Listener's Choice Review, Inglorious Bastards, as well as more recently, Angelina Jolie's fascinating mess of a movie, By the Sea. Uh, this movie stars Josephine Jappi as Charlie, who is a high school girl in a French suburb who befriends the new girl in school, Sarah, played by Lou Delage. And Sarah is sophisticated and bold. She tells stories about living in Nigeria with her mother, who she says is working at an NGO. And the two girls have this kind of all-consuming friendship for a while, which then takes a turn into bullying when things go sour.
1: La elle bonjour, le mec il est And you know
0: there have been movies that have been made about female friendships that turn toxic, especially around this age in your life before. And it's a subject I, I think is still underexplored and that I, I really like. Uh, the fact that when you're young, that you can have these friendships that are in some ways like as emotionally involved as romances and that can cause you as much emotional pain. And it's this is a really smartly observed film about teenage cruelty and teenage closeness. I think it loses a thread a bit at the end, but it's a very smart film. And as often is the case with films that are directed by actors, it gets two great performances from its leads leads, and really like lets them shine. So it's a nice little film, Breathe, uh, from Melanie Laurent that's now available on demand as is Goodnight Mommy. Uh, This is a horror film of sorts, written and directed by Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz, and it stars Lucas and Elias Schwartz as Lucas and Elias, twin boys living in a country house in Austria with their mother, who's recovering from a surgery that has left her face ominously in bandages. Uh Uh-oh. And the two boys, uh, who kind of spent all of their time in the days, mostly alone, kind of entertaining themselves out playing in the wild or hanging around in the house begin to suspect that their mother is actually not their mother that beneath those bandages there is someone else Mm -hmm. and that there's an imposter who's tricking them and you know I think there was a kind of push for this to be one of the other kind of great horror films of the year along with It Follows on the kind of like arty horror scale Mm -hmm. I don't think this is as good as It Follows I think it's kind of plot might not be as as surprising as I think it would like it to be, but it is a beautifully made movie. It is stunningly shot. And there are so many shots that are just spooky. And if you find little blonde twins spooky, well, they're pretty spooky <laughs> as main characters as well. It's It's a really well-made film that I think can get a lot more creepiness than other people would be able to out of like two children basically hanging out in a house.
1: Would it at least make a good double feature with Phoenix for movies with people wearing bandages on their face?
0: Uh, probably not. Oh. But I would say they're both worth watching, okay. especially Separate, I think Phoenix. Separately. Phoenix is fantastic, and yes. this is it's a pretty solid film okay. all, all, all in all. Um, so that is good night, mommy. And lastly, is a film I have not seen yet, but I'm excited to see because it is the film continuation of the British series Spooks, which here was called uh, MI5, MI5. which is the name of the film as well. Um, I watched a few seasons of Spooks and really enjoyed it. Most of it seems to be available for rent online, but not streaming as far as I could find. It's, you know, a contemporary show about uh, spying, spies. In the UK, I think particularly interesting for how it cycled through its cast characters. Main characters would get killed off, or kind of shunted off, um, forced to quit. Uh, you know, it, it over its ten seasons, it ended in twenty eleven. It went through, season one started with uh, Matthew McFadden and David Oyelowo, and then from there it went to like Rupert Henry Jones and Richard Armitage and Laura Pulver.
1: I've seen a little of the show, I didn't realize it lasted so long. Yeah. Ten seasons. and I,
0: I think there was only one cast member, I think, that has been in every season. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie- The screech of the group, so this, to speak. I, yes, it's more the principle of the group, I think. <laughs> Belding. Yes. Uh but this movie Not brings known. in as new characters uh Kit Harington of Game of Thrones right. and Jennifer Eel, who is awesome. Yep. And tells another probably emotionally and ethically
1: devastating story about the cost of spying. I just like the poster for that movie cuz it looks just like a Mission Impossible it looks movie. Exactly they they're like... really they're really turning into the whole MI Mission Impossible thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I, I admire the gall and yeah. the, the the cojones to do that frankly.
0: If you watched any of the series uh this will probably be of interest to you. And if not, I don't think you really need to be up on the series to, to kind of follow what seems to be the storyline. Basically know that it's about, it's about both like the tense thrills of, of being a spy and also usually the terrible costs. So that is MI5, and that is also now available on demand.
1: Do you control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo the Apache and the Little Man? What do you mean, the little man? German's nickname for you. The German's nickname for me is the little man?
0: And as if to make my point, I'm a little surprised how tall you were in real life. I mean, you're a little fellow, but not circus midget little as your reputation would suggest. Where's my man? Where's Bridget von Hammersmart? Well, let's just say she got what she deserved. And when you purchase friends like Bridget von Hammersmark, you get
1: what you pay for. All right, Ramblers, let's get rambling. On episode 99 of Film Spotting SVU, we let you guys decide what Quentin Tarantino movie we would review on SVU 100. Your options were Tarantino's debut film, Reservoir Dogs, his two part martial arts spectacular, Kill Bill, or his revisionist war movie, Inglorious Bastards. Listeners weren't particularly jazzed about the thought of revisiting uh, Reservoir Dogs, which lagged well behind the other two contenders, but they were pretty evenly split on those other options. But in the end, Inglorious Bastards prevailed by a small handful of votes. Democracy wins in the film as well, but it's not always pretty. The title characters here are a band of Jewish American soldiers led by the part Apache Lieutenant Aldo Rain, played by Brad Pitt, The Bastards' mission is one of intimidation and terror. They sneak around behind enemy lines in World War II, causing trouble, creating chaos, and building a legend for the Germans to be afraid of. And in a move Lieutenant Rain claims is inspired by his Native American ancestors, they scalp each of their victims. And these are the good guys, Allison. The bad guy, meanwhile, has much better manners. He's Colonel Hans Landa of the SS nicknamed the Jew Hunter for his predilection for tracking down those that have ran away or gone into hiding, but as played by Christoph Waltz, who won an Oscar for the role, he always does it with a big smile on his face and only the most polite conversations. I think if what he did and everything he stood for wasn't completely despicable, you might even describe him as admirably good at his job. And then there is Shoshana, played by the aforementioned already Melanie Laurent, who narrowly escapes Lander's brigade and becomes the proprietor of a cinema in Paris. And when a German war hero convinces the high command of the Nazis to premiere a propaganda film about his life at Shoshana's Theater, all of these different groups of characters converge, along with Adolf Hitler himself, to take in a movie whose violence quite literally spills off the screen. Allison, we have been doing this podcast for a very long time now, 100 episodes, and we did over 200 episodes of another podcast before that. So I know already that when Inglorious Bastards came out back in 2009, I know we were both really looking forward to it, and we were both kind of disappointed by it. So now that you've had another look at it. What do you think? Do you find more to appreciate this time, or do you still find it to be one of Quentin Tarantino's weaker efforts?
0: I liked it more and less at the same oh, time. Oh,
1: an interesting I, response. Yeah,
0: I think that there were. I appreciated the kind of. I appreciated the concept more of in ways like writing or rewriting history through cinema. Yes, you know, I, I that I appreciated the kind of cleverness and the pandering of that i appreciated the the ways in which characters are all uh, so many characters are involved or come from the film world in this war this this war in action film mm-hmm. and i appreciated a bit more some of the especially in the first half of the film some of the scenes that build up tension slowly i mean this movie is entirely made of those scenes really yes. And I think towards the end, I am still exasperated by mm. them. I think there is a scene with uh, with Landa at the end, involving like the radio and all of that, where I the just, phone, yes, yeah. just like tapping my fingers, and I'm like, "This is your exciting conclusion," um, but I-, I appreciated that. Uh, the thing that I think I like even less about it now. Is, and it's something that I've been thinking about over the last three Quentin Tarantino movies, including The Hateful Eight, which I think we have both seen now. Nope. Oh, you have not seen it now. Yes,
1: I'm seeing it this week.
0: Um, Which I have seen, and I I think that, and which I enjoyed with some reservations. But I think that I have to think about the fact that Tarantino has this real sadistic streak. I don't think anyone would argue that. He enjoys, it's not violence necessarily that is the issue, and I think both of us watch films that are violent all the time, it is the ways in which it kind of licks its lips over some of these scenes. I think like his films can lean into that Mm. in a way that can sometimes feel off-bidding. And I I, I think that I, I still have trouble with and struggle with the ways in which these last three films have kind of incorporated historical atrocity and racism as a way to kind of make that, sadistic streak righteous mm-hmm. and I just still don't really buy that with this yeah you know I just I don't buy it as this like multiple Jewish character revenge story that like the the, the just uh, you know the carnage of which is very high and the kind of cruel, like meanness behind it is right. very high right well, how about you
1: I think we're we're pretty much on the same page generally we might differ over certain specifics but yeah I mean i wasn't i haven't been a huge fan of this movie when i when it first came out i I liked it okay, and rewatching it I mean as it started, I was really into sort of the precision of it. The opening scene is it's terrific is terrific is. and rightfully regarded as sort of a great set piece unto itself but then as it goes on, I did kind of feel like it's a lot of like set pieces unto itself you know it's it's divided into chapters, which a lot of his movies are you know it's not it's not like he suddenly started making narratively quirky movies with Inglorious Bastards, But for some reason here, it kind of, it does a little go off the rails for me. It feels disjointed in a way that a movie like Pulp Fiction does not, even as it's jumping around. That movie just, I don't know, there's something about it that it feels more propulsive. And as I'm watching it this time, I'm just like, yes, some of the scenes are great, and then some of them just seem to go on forever. Even some of the ones that are fairly tense, like, the scene in the basement. The basement, that's, which yes. Which pe- some people love. Some people think that's a masterpiece. But
0: it's got so much, like,
1: fat on it. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like there's a lot of fat in this movie. There, there are scenes like that beginning, and there are other moments where the precision that Tarantino is sort of showcasing is incredible. And every shot, every beat, every glance, they all feel so specific and 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 brilliant, frankly. And then there are other times where it just feels like He's you know, he's always an indulgent filmmaker like that's that's it his, needn't be said. Right. Yeah. But it just feels like at a certain point it's become less like indulgent for the audience's pleasure and more indulgent for his pleasure mostly or first. And I just uh, I, I you know, like I I watch this movie and there are moments, lots of moments where I go, I don't really feel like this is in here for anyone but Quentin Tarantino's pleasure and i'm certainly not getting a lot of pleasure out of it and the stuff you're talking about in terms of the violence and the sort of i liked i hadn't really thought about it this way but the way you put it the way he's sort of taking racism you know these horrible events of true history and using them almost as an excuse to justify you know this wildly sadistic violence i don't know if i would say it's right or wrong but it doesn't really do it for me the way it seems to do it for him you know what i mean like Like you said, we enjoy uh, action movies and violence in movies. I'm not opposed to any of that. But I don't know. The way that this movie luxuriates in it is – it's troubling at times. And the weird thing is I don't really know. It's not even that it's troubling. It's that I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel about this. It goes back and forth. It's just so muddled. Like there's the scene in – and I think we should just – this movie is six years old. We're going to spoil it. Yeah, spoilers are completely off here. We could say whatever we want. If you haven't seen it, go watch it on Netflix right now. The scene, like, for example, there's that kind of beautiful, sad scene where Shoshana dies in the projection room. It's, yeah. like, brutal. And then literally the next scene is Eli Roth and the other one of the bastards putting on these hand guns. They, they like, gun punch people. Yeah, and they're doing these, like, comic booky kind of slow mo matrixy almost moment where they, yeah, they're gun punching people and i'm just like how did we go from this sad tender scene that's like almost beautiful
0: from your character who has the most storied like like terrible past right you know
1: who is like supposedly the heart of your movie right to all right we're gonna get these two guys that are standing outside this opera box in the quote-unquote coolest way we could possibly do it it's just like i don't know it it feels like a contradiction to me i don't see how they fit together
0: in the same way where I had forgotten that you see Diane Kruger's character die and die horribly. Like she, she gets strangled to death and in a scene that feels like
1: largely unnecessary, really not only unnecessary, it doesn't, I don't think looking at it again, that it makes any sense given what Hans Landa does in the, his next scene, which is like surrender, trying to convince like the, like that you mentioned that scene is really bad and it is everything about it. I think stinks, But particularly, what is this character doing? He just he seems the whole movie like he's a true believer, and I guess that's supposed to be the fun of it—is the reversal. But why did he just brutally, sadistically murder? I guess he's an opportunist. Blah blah. blah. Just it doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Yeah, I also you know, and this is something that has always exasperated me about this movie. There is no need for the bastards; like they are extraneous. They're like that whole setup, the whole operation Kino doesn't matter no you know like those like like uh eli roth the gun punching people doesn't right. matter all of those people die because shoshana's plan her own personal revenge plan right. works out they would all get burnt up in the theater
1: right their dynamite i guess does go off at the end of the movie but arguably it's completely unnecessary the doors are locked and they're shooting at these uh, nazis like fish in a barrel that really doesn't matter at all and i, I definitely think that's certainly purposeful on tarantino's point but again to what end and what successful of right when you devote comes from that so yeah.
0: much of the movie to this it's all sound and fury But do they really s- spend that much of the movie with they them they don't spend that much movie on anyone I, you know i feel like when i first saw this movie i felt it was it was i didn't like it because it felt like every scene introduced a new character and then the movie ended their movie ended is, you mean the, or no the movie the whole in general, movie ended right like okay. almost every scene like, here's Shoshana, and then here are the Inglorious Bastards. Right. And here's, here's the film Archie, critic. the film critic yes. slash by. Here's Bridget von, you know, Hammersmark. Bridget von Hammersmark, the actress slash by. Sure. And then, like, by then, you're at, you know, you're, the end of you're the at movie. The, the end of the movie. Yes. And it, it does feel like it. there's no middle, Like or all of those connecting scenes are very deliberately left off. You right. know, you see uh, Arlo Rain. Uh, you see Aldo Rain introducing the idea of the bastards and then immediately cut to them as legends already. Yes. You know? Like. All of the movie
1: is about kind
0: of skipping to the end, introducing and then skipping to the end right. of the story.
1: It do- like I said, it feels like a bunch of short films. It really does. Or, and this is something I was thinking about this time, because, you know, obviously I, st- I haven't seen Hateful Eight yet. But the big push about this movie is the film, that he shot it in 70mm. They're showing it in 70mm uh, with a roadshow, with an intermission. This is film, film, film. The- he is, you know, proselytizing for old-fashioned cinema and old-fashioned celluloid film. And I haven't seen that movie yet, so you could maybe talk a little bit about it. Although I know you're still kind of under an embargo, but whatever. But this movie in particular, it kind of feels like he wants to move into television to me. This Inglorious Bastards would be such a great TV show. I agree. And and you know, I, I know in interviews he's talking about wanting to make a TV show, but it's just so interesting to me that. Tarantino, who is so much obsessed with film, 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 that he he basically bought his own revival house cinema in Los Angeles, so that he had a place to show his movies in 35 mm, millimeter, a place that only shows. Th- you cannot show digital at this theater. They only show film prints, which is fabulous, wonderful, great. And yet, I watch this movie and I go, "This is kind of a, a guy who whose taste, his tastes and talents at this point in his career." Might be just as suited or maybe more suited to television than the art of film.
0: I would agree. I think, you know, I, I feel less that way about Hateful Eight, which is very deliberately confined to one, right. you know, one area and like one showdown, basically. But this movie. Yeah, it feels, feels like, like a TV it show. It feels like in some there's ways. huge portions of it that could be expanded.
1: Absolutely. It yeah. could be a great like 13 episode series with all of these characters getting like you're saying, instead of just introducing them and then sort of shoving them to the finale, having them be built up a little bit. I agree. And uh, you know, like uh, the character I loved this time around is Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's great in this movie and he doesn't get that much screen time. I mean, I know he's like the top billed star, but he has almost all of the best moments in the movie, and he's not in it that much.
0: I know the scene in which he and uh, Eli Roth and the other guy pretend to pretend be, to be tal- Italian, and that and- scene is amazing. Yeah, and Christoph Waltz is like knows exactly like they're so in- faking it. Yes, he's like make it sing, say yes. it again is so yeah. funny. Like it's just so Alberto Margaretti.
1: <laughs> Eli Roth is good in that
0: he's scene too. Really good too yeah, yeah, I know. And little bits like that, like moments like that, are what. Like love about Quir- Quentin Tarantino as much as him like using this the searchers shot you know at the end of that first right. sequence like like he's good at grandiosity but also he's just good at like little funny moments like wry moments like that yeah and I want more of those than I do these like 45 minute dialogue set pieces you know in which tension grows and grows and grows and grows it is interesting
1: that he has this reputation rightfully so as a filmmaker of violent movies with you know action and these sorts of things and yet his movies are so talky and this one might be his most talky film it is just as you said a series of dialogue scenes a series of negotiations a series of scenes and some of them work better than others where characters are feeling each other out you know saying their one thing but actually, being another so, and, and trying to hide their true identities, uh, whether they're a spy, whether they're a Jewish woman in, in France pretending to be someone else because there's Nazis are everywhere. I, I think, like thematically on that level, it works really well. I just, I don't know, it does feel a little redundant and a little just diffuse and, and it doesn't feel tight. Some of those scenes that just go on and on and on that you just, you know, it's a two and a half hour movie that. It's either, it's like at that length, it's both too long and too short. You know, it's too long to be a really kind of tight knit, great sort of punch in the gut, and it's too short to give you the full experience of the bastards and Londa and Shoshana and give them all of their storylines because they really don't feel like people. I mean, the bastards, you know, even beyond Aldo. And that, and the Eli Roth character who gets a little bit of a thing because he's, like, the guy who beats people to death with baseball bats. There's just – you don't even know their names. I guess Hugo Stiglitz also has and, sort of a memorable moment.
0: Udovich. And Udovich just
1: because of that great line. But that, that's it. There's, like, five or six other bastards, right? And we don't even know their names. And it's like – I know. And it's given that this movie is so much
0: about introducing people as, like, these – like larger than life figures and so many of them are like i mean like michael fassbender doing that accent you know doing like the plummiest of british accents yeah he's fun too though he's so much fun yeah and and diane kruger is like delightful in this right you know i like so many of these characters are so much fun and then you wish yeah like you wish you actually had an interval to spend with them that did not involve for some of these characters did not involve them Showing up and then dying. Dying immediately. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, certainly something I felt this time. I will say one thing that I did appreciate more about this film this time around, and it's something you could only appreciate in hindsight, was sort of how many actors who you didn't know at the time or sort of vaguely familiar with that were on the way up. That, you know, Tarantino's big thing that he's so famous for is finding actors who've been neglected, Right that have sort of on the back end of their career, he revitalizes them. He finds these roles that make us remember why we love these people in the first place. And in this case, it's sort of the opposite because it's him finding these people who aren't that famous, who have gone on to have really good careers, you know, like Melanie Laurent and Christoph Waltz. And I mean, Leia Seydoux, I didn't even know she was in the movie. And then there she is in that first scene. And even Michael Fassbender was certainly not that big of a star when he was in this. There's a lot of those kind of, those performances where you go i didn't you know i didn't even uh, realize that this person was in the movie when i saw it the first time and now it it means a lot more daniel bruhl is another one uh who's who's good in the movie that, that you just i appreciated that a lot this time that i definitely didn't appreciate cuz i couldn't appreciate it in 2009
0: yeah i agree and it's got a great cast and even like i enjoyed mike myers in that scene i enjoyed a lot of like like i i think that there are a lot of great performances in this and you just
1: not enough room for them. Wish yes, you they, wish they could... had
0: they had room to breathe. Yeah, and I also like I had forgotten, by the way, about okay. the finale, that that like characters are sent in as like suicide bombers. Yes, and I feel like all of that, like like a lot of this movie, I don't I don't understand. It doesn't seem to make sense to me unless you've already he's you've accepted that in creating these characters that they are disposable. like I mean, I feel like you know that main complaint about being like this is filled with colorful characters who are immediately sent to die right why are they sent to suicide
1: bombers well i think maybe it's just uh designed to be a subversive element because I here understand. we are rooting essentially for suicide sure bombers, i understand
0: that but i mean if you're going to treat these
1: people as characters in any way i i think that's fair i think that's very fair i just i mean to me the, all the ending is just about tarantino making an ending where he can literally like win World War Two with the power of cinema. Sure. So it's just, it's not even like, the narrative essentially is, is sort of taking a huge backseat to the point he wants to make, which is about, in this case, the literal, the literal fiery explosive power of movie making, which is sort of a, a lovely point to make, I guess, except he's making it in the most unlovely way possible.
0: I mean, I think like that shot, like, when the when the theater's on fire and her face in the in the film goes on the smoke. something
1: very interesting about that shot to me. I, mean, I don't I, know what it is. I
0: I think it's it's a fantastic it's terrifying and terrifying shot. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I there's something about the ways in which all of these characters go so easily, and I mean, it's something that crops up in certain other recent Tarantino movies too. But like that. I don't there's like an assumed disposability about them. Right. That just straight seems weird to me. Almost as if they know that okay. they're in a Tarantino movie and that their lives are kind of like meaningless.
1: Yeah that's interesting and certainly that is not the way it felt in early tarantino movies the end of reservoir dogs the end of pulp fiction or i guess technically not the end it's like the middle of pulp fiction right, when a character we really care about and, dies right, it, that meant a lot right it felt you felt it yeah and you're right in this you movie know, and Bruce
0: willis in that movie in, in you know in uh, pulp fiction wants to live and is not and i feel like if that movie were if he made that movie now bruce willis would die <laughs>
1: You know, I think you're probably right. I, th- I think, mo- I mean, all Most of the of characters, characters would die. die. Yeah. I know. He really does seem to delight in killing off just about all Everyone, of his characters.
0: bad, like the, the bad guys, quote unquote, the good guys. Like, yeah,
1: that's true. I think it's an interesting point that you bring up there that I hadn't also considered that that sort of not just the violence, which has always been there, but just again, like the, the callousness of it where, yeah, you know, that the, the, he seems to like create these people just to kill them. Yeah that they can't they have no actual life it's just birth and death there's no in between which is i don't know even like it just i maybe it is by design because he wants them to be disposable because that's what he's doing but it's just like doesn't it mean a lot more and 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 it makes more of an impact when you feel like these characters have more of an actual existence that they want to live right (laughs) or we've seen them struggle to achieve things I, i don't know I don't think this is going to be a popular review of ours, Allison. I'm curious to see. We might get some. We might get some uh, some, some feedback from the listeners, which I mean, I'm fine with. I,
0: yeah, no, I'd I love was, to hear I some passionate to hear, defenses. Yeah, you know, I think we've 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 spent six years with this movie. Yep. So. Yes, please let us know at SVU, at com. We want to hear your either vigorous defenses of Inglorious Bastards or telling us we're so right and we've been right all along. Mm. Especially that. <laughs> we always
1: like to hear that. <laughs> so that's Inglorious Bastards, and that is currently available on Netflix. Welcome back to the eighteenth annual Spooby Awards. Yay, it's the Spooby Awards. Ah. Thank you. I'm going to, I'll add, maybe I'll add some sound effects there. No, <laughs> I won't. I'm definitely not going to do that. Uh, the spoofy Awards. This is something we've been doing actually since the old podcast, which we, for some reason we called them the spoofy Awards even then. We which, could
0: see into the future. Right. Well, they stood for something else back then, but I don't really remember.
1: <laughs> but a lot of, I mean, the, the categories change from year to year. Some of them stay the same, but we like to mix them up. Um, but basically, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time now where everyone does, you know, the best films, the best actor, the best actress, And it's just like. Do you really need another podcast like that? No, a lot of people do that, and they do a really great job with it. So we like to do just different stuff. And so there's some categories here that we do every year. Including the first two, which we'll get to in one second. And then there's some that we do that are either we think of each year, depending on what movies have come out, what we want to talk about. And also we have a few that are suggested by listeners. And uh, we will try to thank the listeners who wrote in and suggested them when we get to those. But we start, as I think we usually do, with the two awards that we definitely do every single year. There's actually three we do. We we'll get well, The third one we do last. Okay. So the first two that we always do are the We Didn't Get It Award. And the They Didn't Get It Award. It's very self-explanatory. The We Didn't Get It Award is a a film that was critically acclaimed, perhaps a blockbuster, a big success that we did not like. And then the They Didn't Get It Award is a movie that we loved that perhaps was not a success, (laughs) either critically or commercially or whatever it is. We start this year with the We Didn't Get It Award. Allison? Yes. What didn't we get?
0: I did not get Brooklyn.
1: Mm, which is current, provocative, yes, is
0: currently in theaters and looking to be an awards contender, certainly yes. for Saoirse Ronan, who mm-hmm. is the star. Uh, this is John Crowley's film about an Irish girl named Alice who emig- emigrates to Brooklyn from Ireland in the 1950s, feels homesick and miserable for a while, and then finds a job, finds some friends, and starts a romance with an Italian-American plumber named Tony, played by Emery Cohen. And I just felt like this movie was beautiful and lacking dramatic stakes. Mm. I just felt like, you know, the choice that she has to face between going, like, she goes back to Ireland for a little bit and she has to decide if she wants to stay and this life that seems to have suddenly opened up for her or to go back to Brooklyn. And I just felt like such a strange way to tell an immigrant story. Like, pretty good where you came from and it's pretty good where you've gone. Which one will you pick? And I don't know. I mean, I, I just never well, there are huge choices here being made about like where you're going to start your new life and how that brings you away from all of the people that you used to know, including your family. I didn't feel like it really mattered. It just felt like it pretty and
1: nice. I don't disagree with anything you're saying, and yet I liked it. I enjoyed I it. It's a nice it. movie. Yeah. I agree. There's not a lot to it. I think it, what it is is just a extremely well-made little movie. Yeah, I watched it uh, the night of Thanksgiving with my wife and uh, my in-laws, and it's, we all sat there. and It was a movie we could all just sit together and enjoy.
0: It is definitely a movie that you can watch with your parents if you have have to go. Like it's the holidays and you have family and you're going go to go to see a movie.
1: This one is a totally innocuous movie to see. With I do your think Sersha Ronan gives a, a lovely performance, and I I liked. You know, it's just like it's a movie that you like spending time with, sort of like what you were, we've been saying about *Glorious Bastards*. We like these characters; we want to spend time with them. That was how I felt about this movie. I agree that the the section in Ireland is not very strong. That's really the part where it needs to the stakes, everything you're saying. I kind of agree with, but I have to say. I like I, I I saw the things you're saying and I was just like I don't really care I'm really enjoying it I appreciate that and I will say this as as someone who is a
0: first generation immigrant and who is a child of immigrants I think I just found something kind of personally disappointing about this story because for so many other people like the opportunity to immigrate to America for like for more opportunities is a big deal and yeah. involves like my parents both left their families behind and everything they knew behind and that's certainly difficult I don't like seeing it being made into such a kind of weirdly even-keeled choice. I mm. kind of I think I personally resented that. But that is just me.
1: How about you, Matt? What didn't you get this year? My We Didn't Get It award goes to a movie I truly didn't get, but a lot of other people did. Uh, I think if we go by admissions, tickets, admissions, more people got this movie than any other movie in 2015 because it's the biggest hit of 2015, and that's Jurassic World. Allison, would you like to guess... Or maybe you know how much money Jurassic World made worldwide.
0: I'm oh, it's over a billion dollars. It is indeed. I'm gonna guess one point two billion dollars. Oh,
1: you're way off. It's one point six oh, billion crap. dollars. Yes, one point six billion dollars. Uh, and you know, like uh, on a certain level, like in a theoretical sense, I do get it. We all love Jurassic Park and dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. And this movie was very cleverly positioned as the Jurassic Park sequel we've always wanted, where you have a functioning Jurassic Park with lots of cool dinosaur attractions, which leads to lots of, you know, dinosaurs busting out and eating people. And on that level, the movie was fine. I thought the design of Jurassic Park in the movie was kind of cool. The effects were cool, 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 great, happy. But anything involving the human characters in this movie, I just thought was so stupid, it borderline offended me. Like, I was almost offended by how dumb these people were, and by proxy how dumb the movie was. And I even did a piece on Screen Crush at the time where I ranked... Every character in the movie, from dumbest to least dumb, and the number one ranking, and no one disagreed with me, was the Indominus Rex, was the dinosaur. All of the people in the movie are dumber than the dinosaur serial killer in the movie. She's literally the most intelligent creature on that island. And in some cases, she's, like, the most intelligent creature by, like, a factor of ten. You know, you got, like, the CEO – He inherited Jurassic Park. He built the place. And in one scene, he's the idealistic dreamer who just wants to build beautiful things. And in the next scene, he's like, why don't I have my death uh, dinosaur? Why isn't it built? Put it. I don't care if it's dangerous. Put it out. Let the people see it.
0: Yeah. Like Bryce Dallas Howard is responsible for like many deaths. And it's never a problem. No. Like, she gets to get, gets to get the guy at the end. Absolutely. <laughs> There's also
1: the her nephews who... Are terrible people and so, deserve to be eaten. So punchable. Yeah. So incredibly punchable. They, they're in that, that gyrosphere. And then, like, then... They just go off by they themselves? Go, they go off by... that they go off by themselves, Allison. They, remember, they're, they go in through a hole in the fence that's not only marked danger warning, it has a clear hole that's been ripped through it by a dinosaur... It's a weirdly, it's a self-loathing documentary
0: a bit. Like there's a streak of like awareness that all of these things are the case. I don't know. The best part of that movie for me was the scene in which the teenager is like on his phone, not paying attention to the T-Rex <laughs> that you don't see. I mean, that's really smart, yeah. but I think it like feeds the whole movie, which is that like, it's like. Don't you want bigger? Don't you want more? Isn't this what you want? Yeah. And I don't. And 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 it's in a way that's almost like I know this isn't the best way to make a movie, but like there this is, is what you want, and it it worked. I, yes. like, so,
1: like I said, I get people wanting a new Jurassic Park. I just don't get that it was this successful. This successful means people were going multiple times. They were telling people they know go see Jurassic World. I don't. I just don't get it. You know, were people that hungry for a new Jurassic World that they would take literally anything? They can do better and they should do better. So that's my We Didn't Get It Award Jurassic World.
0: All right. Well, next up is the They Didn't Get It Award. The award in which we wild-eyed defend a movie <laughs> that no one else liked. Yes. Uh, Matt, what is your pick for this award?
1: Uh, well, on the complete other end of the spectrum from Jurassic World is one of the biggest flops of the year. My They Didn't Get It award goes to a movie that is now a major filmmaker's lowest grossing movie in 35 years. You have to go all the way back to 1978, and I want to hold your hand to find something by Robert Zemeckis. They made less money than The Walk. This movie made $10.1 million in the U.S. It did a little better overseas, and it didn't cost that much. $35 million is the budget I saw. So... It wasn't a studio-destroying bomb, but audiences did not get this movie. Uh, but for me, it really was, and I, I mean this sincerely, not only my favorite movie theater-going experience of the year, but one of my favorite of my entire life. That's not to say it's my favorite movie of the year. I think there are better movies, and I think that like The Walk is not a movie I would necessarily recommend to someone to watch on their laptop, on their television, Because part of what made it so essential was to see it in – preferably on an IMAX screen and in 3D. At home, it's just not going to be as good. But on the big screen, wow. uh, It was just a thing to behold. It was like – you literally felt like you were thousands of feet in the air. My hands were sweating. My armpits were sweating. uh, I was having, like, shivers. I couldn't sit still. I cried a little it is a workout for your emotions or it was at least on the big screen so of course it only made 10 million dollars
0: yeah this is a movie that other you didn't than, get it either well i when he does the walk i think it's sublime right everything going up to that i right. found like verging on intolerable
1: and that is what a lot of people said you know it got an okay rotten tomatoes rating 85% but only a 70 on metacritic which means a lot of people thought it was fine but there wasn't a lot of nerds like me who were really really passionate about it and Yours was the typical critique. You were certainly in the majority here. The character is very broad. The story of Philippe Petit walking on this wire between the Tin Towers we've seen before in Man on Wire, and it's really only the part on the towers that's worth watching. And that's definitely the best part. I don't dispute that. That's the transcendent part. But I actually got kind of swept up in the whole thing, and I liked Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Philippe Petit, and I liked the supporting cast, Ben Kingsley, James Dale, and what I connected with in this movie. Was the way that I felt like Zemeckis was using Philippe Petit's story as his muse to tell a story about movie making and particular right now? You love movies that are a metaphor for movie making. I always do. I'm a sucker for (laughs) them. I won't dispute it. But the fact, you know, the fact that he made this movie, which you can't watch on an iPhone or a or a, a laptop, that it has to be seen on a big screen, an IMAX screen, no less, to really get the full effect. It is – that is as suicidal a gesture as walking between the t- twin towers to me. And it was – he It was he didn't make it – this movie was a huge disaster. It made no money. No one went to see it. And people are going to watch it – the few people that watch it at home are going to go, well, that wasn't very good because they're not they're, – they are literally not going to get it at that point. So people did not get the walk. They're going to continue to not get it now that they can't see it on a movie screen. But I loved it. And honestly, if I had a movie theater – We would show the walk like once a year at least, uh, you know, in 3D. And I would try to, uh, you know, convert as many people as I could to my new love of the walk. And it might not be successful, but God, I really love this movie. They didn't get it though, including you, Allison. Yep,
0: I don't see it. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I suspect you're not going to go with Uh me on my pick. All right, what is it? It is. Uh, we are your friends. Currently available for mm. rent. Directed by Catfish, the TV show host Max Joseph in his feature film directorial debut, <laughs> and starring
1: Zach Zac Efron, Efron, yes,
0: as Cole Carter, who dreams of stardom and escape as a famous edm dj
1: you managed to find a huge movie that was actually less successful than mine so there kudos several, to you
0: there were several giant like epic flops this Gem year. Gem and the holograms yes victor frankenstein yeah um and this was one of them this yes. was one of the first and this was like this made no money at all yeah, um, i think but like seven is, million bucks yeah it is actually i think it, it manages a balance for its characters where it understands that they are kind of like idiot bros (laughs) like that their their aspirations are not necessarily realistic for most of them or or like that grand and yet it takes them seriously and I think in a very even-handed way that I, I turns out to be weirdly moving I never expected that a movie in which Zac Efron cries while DJing his like kind of great like his first big break at a giant outdoor summer concert. Like that shouldn't be a moment that could be pulled off in a movie and yet it weirdly works. Uh, it is I think one of like the perfect uses of Zac Efron in his kind of unreal frat boy looks and also his like extreme but kind of shallow earnestness. It fits around that perfectly to fi- to create the story that I think is like very satisfying i have no doubt this movie will find a following on like television mm. it seems exactly like that in fact, i think it kind of reminds so you're me you're
1: predicting they will eventually get it they will
0: eventually get it okay i think it reminds me a bit of like those kind of the like those 90s coming of age movies that were built around a particular cultural moment like slc punk okay or uh not go but the other rave movie many of them not all of these are very good but i think that
1: they speak to people who actually like those things. Yeah, and there's
0: something kind of comfort foodie about okay. them, you know. And I think that this is actually a little better than those and <laughs> um, also has a hilarious Wes Bentley as a, love, like, 36-year-old, like, uh, has-been DJ. God bless Wes Bentley. Like, the way he's written, he's, like, a hard-drinking character who, like, lost, you know, the magic that he used to have. He's written like he is, like, 65 years old. He is not even 40. <laughs> like, it, it just, it's just, it's hilarious. He's our age. And he, like, groans about, like, your generation, this and that, to Zac Efron, <laughs> oh, and no. it is delightful. Um yeah i just i this movie i felt like it got its characters, who were these like kids growing up in the valley who kind of like like, stand, look at Los Angeles, which is literally a few exits down the freeway, like it's this world away, you know? Like, I like how it, you
1: put yourself out there with this one, Allison. I, you know, I 41% think, on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-huh. I do
0: not think it is a masterpiece. 46
1: on Metacritic.
0: But I think it's actually really satisfying. I think like Matt Dentler said, and I think this is absolutely true, if it had been directed by someone else and had gone to Sundance, there would have been a huge bidding war. Wow. Because it is absolutely the kind of movie that if it had been discoverable- Ah, that people had been like, "Oh, it's a really
1: good debut." It didn't have the it's indie really cred good... this kind of thing would need. It
0: did not, and I think it fell right into this terrible gap where it was neither big enough nor small enough, and mm. totally flopped. But you know, I I totally enjoyed it.
1: I got to admit, I haven't seen it. I didn't see it, so no, I can't. I you can't. And
0: everyone else I can't
1: disagree with you on it. I haven't <laughs> gotten the award screener for that one yet. You know, that one hasn't shown me. up. So weird. I'm, that's probably it's funny lost that in the mail. Like
0: a Furious Seven award screener, but not. <laughs>
1: Are you implying that Furious 7 is not a masterpiece? I'm implying it not deserves in my presence. all of the words. All right. That's what I thought. Shall we move on to our next category? Let's. All right. The next category, sort of similar uh, on a smaller scale, is best unappreciated or underappreciated performance. So, uh, so, you know, at this time of year especially, so many actors and, and performances, it's just that handful. It's all the talk about acting and, and actors. It just comes down to that half a dozen men and women – Who are the ones who are vying for the awards, you know, and it just becomes such an echo chamber. It feels this year, maybe even more than usual. I don't know why. But it just seems like if I have to hear someone talk about Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs one more time when that movie wasn't that great, and he wasn't even that great, I'm going to lose my mind. So that's why we wanted to appreciate someone who's been underappreciated. Allison... Who is your Spoovy award winner in this category? All right I
0: am giving this prize to Jessica Chastain in Crimson Peak. Oh as Lady Lucille Sharp, who's I think in a movie that I for me never quite figured out where it stood in terms of like between homage. it's and, a like, gothic drama. romance, Allison I- I've been told it's a gothic many times, romance, including on a flyer that was passed out to me ahead of the screening. <laughs> Like Are you literally, serious? yes. Like a foreword written by Guillermo del Toro that like explained what Gothic romance is, which really? I think has never I've never so clearly seen a
1: sign that a movie is like doomed, like a sign of surrender than like that you have to explain your genre. I, I will say I saw it at a secret screening at Fantastic Fest where Guillermo del Toro was present, and one of the things he said was, "This is not a horror film." Like he did that same thing in word vocal yes. form and explained to all of us what a Gothic romance was. But anyway, continue.
0: I I think that. Uh, so much of this movie kind of like wavers between wanting to be like a straightforward film of this genre and being an homage and being like uh, verging on parody sometimes. Yeah, and I think the only person who kind of finds a, a good, compelling middle ground is Jessica Chastain, who is like both. She's she's hilarious sometimes. I mean, she is bound so tight and like looks so like um, you know the ha- the housekeeper in Rebecca. Uh, and yet is also kind of femme fatale-ish almost in terms of her place in the story. And I just think it is figures out a place between taking this very seriously and taking being deeply committed to this character with this wild backstory mm-hmm. and then having just a touch of camp, like just enough camp, you know? And I... I I, I think that in a movie in which like the two characters involved, the main characters in the romance are both like such milk. Big thumbs down. Yes. I'm giving the
1: thumbs down. The the uh, listeners yeah. can't see, but that's are, what I'm doing. Are
0: so kind of like, and I think part like by design mostly, just kind bit. of like pallid, like milk toast characters
1: i uh, she's the one that you end up cheering for yeah she's someone with real passion yes she's she wants a gothic romance i just didn't feel any romance or passion there except from her character
0: yes and i you know i I, god knows jessica chastain doesn't need any more praise like she is not an actress who has been underappreciated but in this role i think you see her as someone who can be fun which is something that it's easy to forget you know she can be fun and she can be funny mm-hmm. like she is funny i think in this movie uh in ways that i really enjoyed uh, and in ways that kind of when she's doing things like brushing dead butterflies <laughs> on face like i loved that and i get kind of that's when you see like kind of the signs of life in the movie are moments like that yeah you know um so that I would say she was the best part of that movie for me, easily. Um, Jessica Chastain, you are the
1: best underappreciated performance of the year for me. How about but, you? Yeah, I was not a huge fan of that movie, but I like that pick. She was definitely the best part, and she was certainly underappreciated for what she did in that movie. So, kudos to you. I, I, I like well, that thank one. You. Yes. Now, for this category, I went with someone who is getting plenty of attention this year. Deserving attention, I think, for a big Oscar movie, but zero attention for another movie, which was actually one of my favorite performances of the year and is definitely not an Oscar movie, and that is Kate Blanchett, who will, I think, definitely be nominated for an Academy Award for Carol, and I'm totally cool with that. She's wonderful in that movie. But I also really loved her as the Wicked Stepmother in Cinderella. And I call her the Wicked Stepmother because that's what she's always called in Cinderella. But what I loved about this performance was the way that Kate Blanchett made her more wounded than Wicked. And that this is a woman who's basically been just as beat up by life or worse than Cinderella has. She's had two marriages to two husbands both of them died. She's left to take care of these horrible daughters that she clearly hates and doesn't like. And that doesn't excuse the way she uh, mistreats Cinderella, but it does – it illustrates what the whole movie is about. The whole movie has this beautiful message about have courage and be kind. That's what the whole movie was about. And I like the way that Cinderella and the Kate Blanchett character, Lady Tremaine, they become two sides of the same coin. One of them has courage and is kind, and the other one isn't. And you sort of get to compare them that way. And I thought that was just a nice, lovely way to reinterpret this story. We've seen a million times. And Kate Blanchett was so great as this character and really turned this simplistic character into, I thought, a very kind of interesting and multidimensional person. You know, there was – maybe this was a little bit of the Brana that – directing it, Kenneth Bronda directing the movie – but there was something in that at that last sort of big confrontation between Lady Tremaine and Cinderella. That was like almost Shakespearean stuff going on there. She's holding the when she's holding the uh, the glass slipper. I thought that was a great scene. I you know, maybe I'm biased because my wife is the biggest Cinderella fan in the world, and so I got to see this with her and she really liked it. but I really liked it too. I thought this was a really nice uh, version of this story, and without Kate Blanchett, it wouldn't work. A quarter as well. She really, I thought, was absolutely wonderful in this movie.
0: I think she's great in it too, though. I think she kind of disrupts the movie for me. Like, oh. I was not. You a didn't big like a fan the movie, that movie much. as you were, uh, but I think that in ways she brings like so much kind of like actual economic and like you know realism, right? Like social realism to this character who had to marry not for love because she needed to support her daughters and all of that. That I think that it just made me just not care about Cinderella when she's like she literally all of her choices are not about like she doesn't care about kind of like having how to support herself or what would happen to the house or all of that and I just feel like a a movie in which it's like well don't care about those things and you'll be rewarded with the prince Mm. I just I, I didn't side with you know Kate blanchett's character because she's evil and does some very cruel things sure. but i kind of felt like my sympathies were aligned with her as someone who seems to live in a real world right as
1: opposed to the fairy tale <laughs> that maybe her she was she was in. almost too good for the movie for you there you go well i i thought she was wonderful and she's really having i mean she's always great But she is really on quite a roll lately, and I, you know, I I love Carol. I think Carol's great, and she is incredible in that movie as well. But you know, if you go, if you haven't seen Cinderella, if you thought, oh, it's just a kids' movie, and you know, it is a kids' movie. But if the opportunity arises to see it, don't necessarily, you know, shrug it off. And at the very least, I think what we're both saying is you will get a great Kate Blanchett performance. So she's my. My uh, underappreciated performance of 2015. Allison, let's get to one of our uh, uh, fan-suggested categories, shall we? Yeah,
0: let's. This
1: this one was suggested by uh, someone on Twitter, one of our followers on Twitter. Our Twitter account, of course, is at FilmspottingSVU. This was recommended by at CareBearJerry. Thank you, Jerry. Jerry's suggestion was best spy movie of the year, and there certainly have been a lot of good ones. Alice, there have. there have been. It's been a very. If you like spy movies, this has been a very good year for you, Allison. You want to go first this time?
0: Uh, yes, I will. I did. Uh, I chose an, a movie. I, I figured I knew what movie you would pick, so I chose another one. But I also wanted to give a shout out to Man from Uncle, which yes. while not like a masterpiece, is a really fun movie. Very stylish. Really
1: didn't get talked about and kind of went away and it's, it's a good time I it think. was swamped out by because there were so many I think it came at a bad time of the year because it, had, it was coming on the heels of some I think still better spy movies yes
0: and also I don't think that
1: it had the brand recognition nobody except my dad yes. hi dad I love you <laughs> and I'm glad we we went to see this movie together in fact but he's the only person that cares or at least remembers and enjoyed The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Yeah, yeah. and even if you did it wasn't really like the TV show it was like an origin story it was like right, The Man right. From U.N.C.L.E. begins so it right. really was for no one
0: so just wanted throw to nice. mention yeah there. Fine. but the, the movie that i'm gonna pick is spy fittingly mm. uh the comedy starring melissa mccarthy with a particularly delightful jason statham as a character Wonderful. who basically is a spoof of of kind of his more badass characters and gives a lot of monologues about impossible feats of secret <laughs> agent agency among other things i think my favorite line is where he shows up in a suit impossibly, and he's asked where he got the suit, and he said, I made it, didn't I? And uh, and you feel like maybe he could make that suit. Um, but I also really liked the ways in which Melissa McCarthy played a character who was like, good potentially very good at what she would do she could do and took herself out of the equation you know because she was so smitten with the character played by Jude Law that she made herself his backup the character that you see in a lot of shows who usually looks more like Melissa McCarthy and is the person in the headset who stays at the desk and you know shouts out instructions and googles things (laughs) and I you know I I really like the ways in which the this movie took that type of character and then you know, put 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 her out into the field, yeah. and also never let her have the kind of glamorous spy fantasy that she wanted. There's an ongoing joke in it that whenever she's handed a cover, it's always like a cat lady, super uh, dowdy, ladies, uh, yes, that wearing that she has to some kind yes. of novelty sweater, yes, and is like on really vacation good. while like using her unemployment or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's always the stories are always extremely not glamorous. And But that she kind of, you know, I, I, Melissa McCarthy, I think, still leans into slapstick in ways that I don't always love. And I, I, I feel like there's a type of role that she seems to expect that she's got to do or type of comedy that she expects she's got to do that even in a, a movie like this that really tries to push her in different directions, she ends up doing sometimes. And I don't always love that. But I loved the kind of sweetness to this about how she had to figure out a way to be a spy, that did not fit in with any of the cliches. And I I thought that worked out really well in this movie. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's got a lot of great little performances, but it's also, it's also actively trying to figure out a way to fit Melissa McCarthy into uh, a genre that really doesn't have a place for her out, you know, like out actually involved in the business of spying. Yes. So I really like that spy. That is my pick
1: for best spy movie. Not, not the movie I expected you to say, I was sort of expecting we might hear a little mission impossible love here. I thought
0: about it, but then I think we kind of, I think like we've talked about it before and I do really enjoy it.
1: Yeah, no, I I don't think I liked Spy quite as much as you did, but I, you hit on the things that work the best about it. Jason Statham is really, really He's funny fantastic. and fantastic. And, yeah, it's it's very clever in the way that it's taking this character type of these movies where the, the woman is always sidelined and it lets her, you know, get out in the field. But it also it, – it's having a lot of fun with all these different things. And I think even – wasn't one of the big fights in the movie in a kitchen, you know, like it's like almost literally like poking at people who are like making fun of women and telling them to do uh, stereotypical things. It's like, well, oh, we're gonna stick it to those guys, and I thought that was great. And I, I think we need more movies like that for sure. Absolutely. All right. So as we've already said, very good year for spy movies. You mentioned The Man from Uncle. I wanted to make sure to do that. Rogue Nation also. Great, very good for me, though. And I'm sure this is you were expecting this. It's a no brainer, it's got to be not just because the word spy is in the title, but Mm -hmm. Bridge of Spies, the latest film from Steven Spielberg. It's got Tom Hanks playing basically an ordinary guy with a very strong moral compass. He's drafted into the cold war to be the defense attorney for this Russian spy who's been captured. And if you're an espionage fan, uh, you know, movie-wise, I mean, not, not not necessarily the concept of espionage in the real world, this movie really, I thought, had everything. It had chase scenes. It has one really incredible action set piece. This Like that crashing sequence was really incredible. It's got suspense. And it's got plenty of ideas to chew over about the nature of good and evil, right and wrong, honor, duty, and on and on and on. It is Spielberg and Hanks doing Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart. It's them doing John Ford and Henry Fonda. And it's about how even in a time of war, you can win, or it, they would probably argue you only win by maintaining your principles and your decency and not stooping to the level of uh, of an enemy who's not as principled as you. And that seemed pretty timely to me when it came out. I feel like a month or two later, with the way things are going, it's maybe an only more urgent, uh, the, the message of this movie. So uh, it's almost a shame that a movie that's about something that took place this long ago is still so relevant and timely. But I uh, I haven't had a chance to rewatch this movie. This is one of the, the my favorite movies either that I haven't gotten to rewatch yet. And, but I would like to. I really would. I hope it holds up as well as it did on the first viewing. Because on first viewing, I was just totally... Uh, in love with this movie. I think you said it was a very dad movie. It's
0: an extremely dad movie. I'm going to be a dad was... in a few
1: weeks, so I'm there allowed to go. like it. That's my excuse.
0: But I I would argue it does the exact same thing that Spy does, which is it dumps a character who is usually, who is like a... Very fair. You know, a tax attorney.
1: I can't disagree. That's right. puts
0: him into this role as a spy. Right. And then suggests that there are ways in which you are a better spy because of that, because you do not come in with the same kind of like jaded
1: And relying on your intellect as opposed to necessarily your physical skills as a murderous hitman.
0: Yeah. yeah. Also, Mark Rylance in this movie is... Amazing.
1: Great. Fantastic. Okay, so... Those are our Best Buy movies. Thank you, at Jerry, for the suggestion. We have one more uh, audience-suggested category. It is from listener Kino Kabir, at K-I-N-O-K-A-B-I-R on Twitter. And we we, we tweaked the the name of it slightly. We're going with it as the most grueling watch of 2015. Our, Our friend Dave Chen has an expression he uses on his podcast a lot, the Slash Filmcast. A good sit. A movie is a good sit. These would be the opposites of a good a sit. Hard sit, a hard sit, a bad sit, a movie that you had you squirming, checking your watch, you couldn't wait for it to be over. Allison, should I go first this time? Why don't you go first? All right. So for the most grueling watch, this was one I, I thought about a lot because uh, there are bad movies and then there's bad movies, and there are, are arguably there are much worse movies than my choice. But when I think of painful experiences. I think when something is truly punishing, not just bad, there has to be some sort of like failure in it. If it's just bad and you expect it to be bad and it's just boring, like that's one thing. But where a movie feels like it should be good, whether it's the premise, the filmmakers, whatever it is, and that you can almost sense amidst the crap that there's a good movie buried beneath it, that's the really terrible thing to watch. So that's why my pick this year is Chappie. From Neil Blomkamp, a director who has gone from Wunderkind to Dumkoff about as quickly (laughs) as anyone since M. Night Shyamalan. And at least M. Night Shyamalan, to his credit, had three good movies, good to great movies in a row before he fell off a cliff. Neil Blomkamp fell from grace faster than a robot dies when you take out its guard key in Chappie, which is very fast. So the premise here, if you didn't see the film... Lucky you, was uh, basically short circuit meets Robocop. You have this police robot that is given basically real human consciousness. And there are so many interesting things you could do with this and explore ideas like nature versus nurture, the existence of a soul, humanity's uh, obsession and reliance on technology. How many of I, how many of these ideas does Chappie actually explore, Allison? None of them. Not really any of them. It's just super violent and even not even that interesting an action movie in which this supposedly brilliant scientist played by Dev Patel basically gives his robot to these bank robbers played by Ninja and Yolandi Visser from the South African band uh, Die Antwoord. They're basically playing themselves. Yep. But instead of being a hip hop group, they are criminals and terrible actors. I think that's the characters they're playing. And they teach Chappie how to be a gangster, how to talk like a gangster, how to wear big chains, how to shoot an AK 47. Oh, God, I'm getting upset just thinking about this movie again, Allison. It's, you know, it's almost a metaphor for itself because it is about how this innocent soul is corrupted by violence. And the movie itself. It's search for any kind of meaning is also corrupted by shootouts and gunfire and violence. So that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure that was deliberate. But either way, it doesn't make the movie any more enjoyable or less painful to watch. And I was actively annoyed through most of, like, the second two-thirds of this movie. And I haven't even mentioned Hugh Jackman and his hideous haircut (laughs) as another robot designer who is so stupid – You know, I heard he just got hired by Jurassic Park to uh, spearhead their work in Jurassic World. Jurassic World Two will fit in right there. So there are a couple other movies I could have put on here. I was really, I almost picked Pixels. There are moments in Pixels that are worse than anything in Chappie, but Chappie is more consistently horrible. So I hate you, Chappie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, fair
0: enough.
1: No. No disputes here. All right. What was your most grueling watch of 2015,
0: Allison? Well, even though it's a good movie, I felt like I should give one quick shout out to Out1 here, which was literally grueling in that it was 13 hours Okay, and, you know, was a hard watch. That's fair. Very fair. Uh, By the way, you can still stream that on Fandor. Um, But my pick for this uh, is a movie that, you know, I think we've talked before about comedians who do dramatic roles and how sometimes they manage to push themselves in kind of like ways that are great, but other times they end up, they pick like material that just you think no one should, whether it's schmaltzy or in this case, just, I think terribly, terribly written. It is I smile back, which is available to rent now directed by Adam Salke and written by Amy Koppelman. It's based on the novel she wrote uh, and stars Sarah Silverman as Laney who is this upper middle class housewife uh, and mother who has a seemingly perfect life. Her husband's played by Josh Charles. He clearly loves her. She has two cute kids and this really nice house. And we learn very quickly, she's been having an affair. She drinks, she does all these drugs except for meds for her bipolar disorder, which she's gone off of. Um, And it's just like, I, I feel like it approaches kind of, camp, like unhappy housewife camp in the ways in which it just shows this character in like constant, like bad behavior. It turns mental illness and depression into like acting out in ways that I think are actually offensive. Uh, and I, there and then there are scenes in this that are just, I can't believe that like I, this movie actually did not, it got some positive reviews that I, mm. I was a little shocked by. I mean, there are scenes in which her, Lainey does things like, gets really blitzed on pills and liquor, crawls into her daughter's room, masturbates using her teddy bear on the floor, and then curls up in the fetal position and cries. And I just could not believe that a movie actually like like gave that, like, presented that very seriously as like a kind of act of drama. And I, I do not think Sarah Silverman is bad in this, but she gives her all to material that really I don't think deserves it, and that... It tries to do something that I think is kind of like fundamentally a noble thing, which is to say that depression has nothing to do with you can be depressed in like perfectly stable, sure. you know, like white picket fence scenarios, as well as having things bad happen to you. But I, I feel like this this movie in the which it, it ways in which it portrays depression are just like are so kind of like over the top and just so such a weird ball of cliches. Uh and I, I just I I, I couldn't believe that someone kind of signed up so many people signed on for this talented people signed on for this and kind of devoted a lot of energy to this um i would like to see sarah silverman do more dramatic roles i think there's like potential to be seen here but this
1: was painful for me to watch it was grueling and it has a it has a better rotten tomatoes and Metacritic score than we are your friends Wow. so what you're saying here allison is you did not smile back I did not smile back. All right. I frown back. Harumph. All right. Let's move on to our next Sfoovy award category. This is a fun one. This is Best On Screen Couple. Best on-screen couple. Allison, I want you to go first this time. All
0: right, I'll go first. We we decided this wouldn't necessarily be romantic. Did not have to be. We open this up to all possibilities. Any
1: couple it's, on screen.
0: And the movie I picked is not a romantic pairing. It is Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace and Jesse Eisenberg mm. as David Lipsky in the end of the tour. Uh, this is a movie that I liked the middle part of a lot, and I hated the framing device. It's, you know, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. This is based on interviews that David Lipsky did with him, an interview that never actually got published for a profile for Rolling Stone that never got published. And then when David Foster Wallace committed suicide, uh, David Lipsky looked up these recordings and ended up publishing a book. And the framing device is that it starts with him learning about David Foster Wallace's suicide. It kind of ends with him reading from the book in ways that I think turn this all into a weird anecdote of that time I hung out with the famous writer who was, you know, depressive um that said the whole the whole bits of the interviews I think are pretty wonderful and it obviously pulls a lot from the conversation that the two actually had uh and really interestingly shows it shows a character. It is a good movie about magazine profile writing because you have this character who is trying to write a profile of another character who is a writer who has written profiles and knows exactly what he's doing and the kind of duel that they're having. And the self-awareness that, uh, that David Foster Wallace's character has over how he thinks he's coming across it leads to this power, this kind of like power switch that I, I really liked. I think there's one part where he says, I don't even know if I like you yet, but I'm so nervous if you like me. And, you know, it's a very good Jason Siegel performance with this character who is so smart, but also so almost, like, cripplingly self-aware of how he was perceived and of fame and wanting to get away from that, but also kind of being very, like, kind of conscious of it. Uh, and I, there are lots of, like, just wonderful little scenes, uh, including the ones in which you, you're made very aware that to be a good interviewer really means not trying to make friends with someone you're not their friends mm-hmm. in fact like the things that might make you, might be best for an interview are things that the person you're interviewing doesn't want published necessarily including parts where where david lipsy kind of pokes at his personal life and asks questions about depression and drug use that you know don't go over well but uh, they're also both colleagues they're both writers and there's some jealousy there as well there's like a wealth of kind of complications between them that come out in dialogue that I really appreciated. So for a movie that I was very mixed on for reasons I've explained, I think that like, it's got some really fantastic exchanges and that are very well acted. Um, So that is my pick. The end of
1: the tour. That's a very good pick. I like that movie. I might like that movie more than you did. But, uh, yeah, I I, I actually didn't think of them for this category, but that's a really good choice. They're great together. They kind of have a little of that Inglorious Bastards vibe of sort of the the kind of uh, battle of the wills and sort yeah. of the uh, poker game of a dialogue conversation that, that's the best parts of Bastards is kind of what all of that movie is, is they're each trying to feel each other out. They're saying things. They might be holding some things back. They're trying to read one another. Yeah. And you're right. It really does show, and, and not in, a, in an always flattering way. No, and I think, in
0: some ways that are sometimes excruciating.
1: Yeah, especially as, a, you know, as a, a writer myself, like the Jesse Eisenberg character or the David Lipsky character. I related to him at at times in that movie in ways I was almost uncomfortable with. Like, it hurt me to say that that looks like me. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: there's a part towards the end where he runs around the house and he just, like, lists, yeah, yeah, like, listing into his recorder all of these details about the house for color, the piece, that it's, like... I just like curled up in a ball
1: in like (laughs) pained recognition. At least they weren't eating truffle fries. That's all you could say. (laughs) That would have really made it really rough. That's a real inside baseball joke. Okay. My on screen couple thought a lot about this one. I did not think of the end of the tour, but I did think about. Nina Haas and Ronald uh, Zerfeld from Phoenix. Who are fantastic. I thought about Juliet Pinoche and Kristen Stewart in Clouds of Sils Maria. Mm-hmm. I thought about Vin Diesel and Paul Walker in Furious 7. Oh, white boy, it's here. It's a beautiful, beautiful on-screen couple there. But I eventually went with what had been my first choice. I just went with my gut. And I picked Chiara Diana and Sidzi Babette Nudsen from The Duke of Burgundy. And mm. here are two characters who I personally seeming have very little in common with. They're gay and I'm straight. They enjoy sadomasochism. I do not. They get their kicks from using human toilets. And as far as you, Allison, or anyone listening other than my wife knows, I do not get my (laughs) kicks from using human toilets. But this couple who have these eccentric tastes, I think, combine and the performances together give you this wonderful portrait of what's ultimately a very universal and even in some ways mundane relationship. And how – all relationships are about finding compromise and working through problems and, you know, sort of focusing on what you love in another person and all of that other stuff that's sort of the the, the sexy stuff, quote unquote, is all the window dressing and that when you, when you get right down to the core of it, it is just about what marriage is, which is love and compromise and, uh, you know, like I watched this movie not really knowing what to expect and then I saw in some ways, my life. And I think there's something very beautiful about that. Making something that's so lurid and set in this strange universe where there are no men at all, not a single man exists. Everyone is either an expert on butterflies or an amateur expert on butterflies. And yet I still found something so relatable and very true about this movie. And Deanna and Newton are so great together. They have, again, it's another movie where it's kind of, there's a little bit of a poker face thing going on here, especially at the start of the movie when you first meet these characters, you don't know Quite what the relationship is, what the power dynamic is, and as it goes on, we get to see all of that evolve. How they relate to one another, who has the upper hand, and then there is that there is that element of sensuality between them. There is it's restrained, but there's definitely some some chemistry between them as well. So they're great. You know, I I, w- I would love to see uh, these characters again. Uh, maybe a sequel, a TV series, a uh, sitcom about the lives of these characters. I would I would be down for that. But it has to be very Strange and humdrum. They have to keep they have to kind of keep that balance. That would be the important part. So that is my on-screen couple of the year from the Duke of Burgundy. It's a good pick. It's a great movie. Our next Sfoovy Award, and we're getting down here. We've got two more categories. Our second to last category here, Allison. Best conversation piece of the year. Not necessarily the best movie. Didn't even have to be a good movie, I suppose. Yeah. Just the movie that you had the most what would you say? The most rich discussions It provoked the most interesting discussions. Yeah, I
0: think that, that that
1: describes it. Shall I go? Shall I go first? Why don't you go first? Sure. So my runner-up, actually, for this award, would be a bad movie, which was Fantastic Four. Frankly, oh, maybe yeah. the worst movie of the year, but one of the most interesting to discuss because it was so poorly made and so obviously hacked to pieces.
0: And also, but so, and you could see
1: these ghosts of ideas of yes. what it seemed to be going for. And and you, I would, you would sit there with people who had seen it and say. OK, this part, was this Josh Trank's idea or was this the ghost editor, director, whoever who came in? Was this a reshoot? Was this the editors after the fact? Like, how did this and then some of their decisions were so baffling to, like, fix it, quote unquote, that you would just sit there and you it, it provoked actually a lot of interesting discussions. Plus the whole eating the Denny's menu. People still want to talk about that, eating the entire Denny, Denny's novelty Fantastic Four menu. So I've had I definitely had a lot of conversations about that movie. But in terms of really, like, rich, intense discussions, both about the sort of cinematic qualities of something, but also bigger ideas about humanity, philosophy, sexuality, psychology, technology, for me, the movie, the winner has to be Ex Machina. Uh, Basically, everything I wanted out of Chappie, I got here in Alex Garland's very interesting movie about the world's first artificial intelligence, this robot named Ava, played by uh, Alicia Vikander, who's been... Given this Turing test of her potential humanity by her creator, played by Oscar Isaac, and one of his very naive underlings, played by Dom Hall Gleason, and in terms of, again, that richness of debate and discussion, this was the movie that I definitely had the best and both best and most of this year. You know, debating whether that robot character has a conscience, whether the ending is a happy ending or a, a sad ending, whether Oscar Isaac is a true villain or not. Whether Dom Hall Gleeson is in some ways the villain of the movie, or if at least he's a a good person or a bad person. And I even found that I saw the movie twice, and seeing it a second time, I felt my own attitudes about some of these characters really shifted and changed. Like, you see the movie the first time very much from the Dom Hall Gleeson's character's perspective, because you're sort of new to this world. And then when you know what's going to happen, I don't know, I really felt like I was seeing it more in some scenes through Oscar Isaac's eyes, which was a very interesting thing to do. So... That to me is the is the clear winner here. Ex Machina, a movie that is, I believe, is available uh, for rent already, and certainly worth people it's, checking out.
0: I, I believe it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay,
1: now. I'll double check to make sure. But yeah, that's a movie that people missed. It. Some people love it. Some people aren't as uh, uh, hot on it. But I do I do find that even people who don't like it, it's a rich movie. It provokes a lot of of, of talking.
0: Yeah, it's it does what you want from smart sci fi, which is it, it lobs all of these interesting ideas out there. Yeah, and- you're right. It
1: is on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Right
0: now, that's um, uh, a great movie. Uh, my movie is not one that I would call a great movie, but is by far the one that I have discussed the most this year, which is Fifty Shades of Grey. Wow. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, um, the adaptation of E. L. James' bestseller about sadomasochism. More sadomasochism in this podcast than I would have expected. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson with a screenplay by Kelly Marcel, and I, I feel like this movie I I have, even though I I don't feel like I'm particularly attached to this movie as like, uh, as something that I like all that much, I feel like I've done so much defending of it, both because I think there was a crowd that automatically kind of sniggered about it as like, you know, a piece of erotica, which I often without seeing it or often just because by finding the concept, uh, you know, hilarious, which I think is dismissive and kind of just dumb, like a, a kind of dumb approach, uh and then all of the kind of other side of it which is that i i feel like there's so many attacks on it from the side of people who are saying like this is uh glorifying an abusive relationship right. inherently offensive right that this is inherently offensive mostly from people who had read the i have not read the book still i don't really care about the book Um, but like mostly people coming in from the book and saying like like bringing those same criticisms to the movie often as well without seeing it and i i feel like there are so many interesting things in this movie that is like a fairly silly, but also like, uh, I think Sam Taylor Johnson managed to pull a less silly than, than maybe one might've expected. And it versions, could have been yes, perhaps. Yeah. I'd say that's fair. Yeah. With, with at least I, I think Dakota Johnson bringing some life to Anastasia Steele, a virginal, um,
1: it's you college it. student. Now you got to say it.
0: Exactly. Well, uh, a virginal college student who ends up in this masochistic relationship with Christian Grey, played by Jamie Dornan, who looked miserable the whole movie.
1: <laughs> he looks so sad. He looks so sad.
0: <laughs> uh, but I think that what is most interesting to me about this movie and it's a conversation I've had a lot, beyond I think the idea that it glorifies an abusive relationship, which I don't think it does, but it are the ways in which I don't like it's not, I think, a particularly feminist movie, but it is an extremely feminine movie and a feminine fantasy. It is like a female written story that I think reflects a lot of kind of like like uh literary kind of tropes in terms of like female written romance, from like bodice rippers to Jane Eyre in terms of like uh trying to, you know, reform a rake in terms sure, of being right. kind of like uh a ravishment fantasy of this, mm-hmm. like, experienced older man. And also in terms of uh, this person, like, in, in terms of kind of, like, melting the stony heart, right? Like, sure. getting this character who's emotionally Absolutely. aloof and removed and kind of changing them and opening them I'll up. I'll fix him. Yes. And, I, you know, these are things that have, have have been in, like, female written literature for a long time. And it's been, like, I don't know that I've ever seen them on screen so kind of, like... Nakedly, not just in the literal sense, you know, that these, that to have so kind of unabashedly a story like this, that I think is usually now these days like kind of pushed aside to romance, you know, like romance literature or fan fiction, frankly. And this started as fan fiction and I I think brings. I think a tone and point of view that may be a little silly looking, but is also, I think very unabashedly made for female audiences and female pleasure. And I, I think that even in movies that are supposedly about that and that supposedly cater to that, they usually don't look quite like this. This looked kind of almost alien, you know, I think in some of the ways in which it, it, it tried to serve its audience. And I, I, I found that fascinating. I had a lot of conversations about this movie. And I think it is one of the most interesting movies of the year, even if I don't think it's a terribly successful movie. Um, And, you know, I think I'm still really interested to talk about it. I have no idea what's going to become of the second movie with El James stepping in and taking yeah. more of a role. That sounds dreadful to me, but maybe also <laughs> I think probably going to be
1: fascinating in its own it might right. Might be worse and even more interesting at the exactly, same time, yeah. as
0: well. Yep. But you know, I I think that 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 line between being like that the idea that a female fantasy Something that is servicing a female fantasy is not necessarily a story about a totally empowered, you know, like character, because that's not the point of the movie is not representation, Mm -hmm. but is serving this audience who is looking to be indulged. So Fifty Shades of Grey had a lot of conversations about it. Happy to have one with you.
1: (laughs) So when next time you see Allison, just be like, hey, what about them? Let's talk. Let's talk it out. Let's 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 hash out all these shades of gray. I know I. I think I, I I think I largely agree with you. I mean, I don't think it's a a good movie, but it's not that far from a being a, a good movie, and it's certainly an interesting movie. I do feel like Jamie Dornan. I mean, I know that was sort you of know. like compromised casting from the beginning. He was a replacement at the last minute. I kind of feel like if you replace him with somebody else, it's like almost instantly like a good movie. Maybe yeah. not a great movie, but like a pretty decent sort of movie yeah. for a lot of the reasons and you're talking I, about. You
0: know, we we see a lot of movies that are male fantasies like half of like big movies are you lie are, i don't believe yes.
1: that it's true at all, all. Are Male fantasies, Arumph.
0: and that are kind of like cater to male fantasies Absolutely. and i feel like this is one of the rare this is what a blockbuster looks like right that is aimed like unabashedly caters
1: to female fantasies right
0: and that's there's something, that alone
1: very interesting there's something to that and there should be more of that frankly that's what i say all right we're moving on to our very last spoovy award of the night And this is uh, probably my favorite Sfoovy Award every year. (laughs) And that is when we predict the best movie of next year, Sight Unseen. It is cheating to pick a movie that you've seen that doesn't open till next year that you love. That right. is not allowed. And generally, we don't even pick anything that's sort of played places. So if, even no. if you haven't seen it, but you know that it's well-reviewed at the Toronto oh, yeah. Film Festival. That, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Now, every year, we fact-check ourselves from the previous <laughs> uh-huh. year, and we discuss what our picks were. Allison, did you go back and look? Did you, I am did I going to th- surprise you? Okay. Surprise me. So last year— you actually – you picked one movie, but you mentioned another. I'm going to tell you both. Okay. Now, you claimed it would be cheating, even though it doesn't violate any of those rules, for you to have picked Mad Max Fury Road.
0: Because the trailer had already Because the come
1: trailer out. had come out, and yes. it was an incredible trailer. It was an amazing trailer. Right. And, I, I, I mean, that was a strong choice. Even though that wasn't your official choice, that was a very strong choice. Yeah, that that's fantastic. Fat- we haven't mentioned it once in the smoothies, but that's probably just because it's more the movie that everyone's going to be talking about on those typical podcasts about yes. the b- best movies of the year. Your this has never happened to us before. Your pick for the best movie of 2015 did not open in 2015. <gasps> what it, was it? It was Midnight Special. The new Jeff Nichols movie which now is wow. opening I believe in March yes. if I'm correct. That's the sci-fi thriller. Now there is a trailer. It's definitely coming out now. It's been sort of very slow coming. I think it was originally supposed to open in November of this year. Certainly in the fall, but they pushed it back, and it's a it's Michael Shannon, and his his son has superpowers, and it's like a chase film with a sci-fi twist, and we're big Jeff Nichols fans here, so that was I thought at the time a fabulous choice, but it didn't come to it pass. didn't come out, so this is like a TV. Now you get to have two best movies of 2016 yes. because that's like your unofficial Gaming pick. The
0: system, yes,
1: and my pick, just okay. for the record, was untitled cold war spy thriller <laughs> which became bridge of spies which Nicely we talked about done. on the on the show which was absolutely one of my favorite movies of the year so it doesn't work always work out that well but we our our our, our uh, forecasting abilities were very strong last year We'll we have no idea how well we'll do next year but it's time to uh to cast those votes In indelible ink. (laughs) So besides Midnight Special, Allison, what will be the best movie of 2016?
0: Okay, the best movie of 2016 is going to be The Girl on the Train. Oh. Yes. I'm saying this because it is based on this nasty, totally page-turning novel by Paula Hawkins that read really like a lesser gone girl, like maybe a little less... Well written, or maybe a lot less well written, depending on how you feel about Gone Girl. But a really kind of like quick, fascinating read with three major female characters, um, one of whom, the main character, is this heartbroken alcoholic who's a very unreliable narrator because she keeps blacking out. Okay. Uh, and the cast so far has included Re- Rebecca Ferguson, Emily Blunt, Justin Thoreau, Haley Bennett, and Luke Evans. And it is directed by Tate Taylor who did the help and then surprised the hell out of me with get on up. And I think what prom- what's promising to me about that is that get on up, you know, jumped through eras and kind of managed to bring all of these threads kind of together. Yeah, And this is a movie that goes through multiple characters okay. uh, and kind of also has a character who has to piece together what happened when she was like blackout drunk and tries to piece together this information. So I think that there's something about the non-linearity of that that makes me think, maybe, maybe. It's written by Erin Cressida Wilson, who wrote Secretary, promising, and Men, Women, and Children, less promising.
1: (laughs) So I'm just You I, are you're, you're you're I like this because on the one hand, sure, this it's a you know it's a bestseller and that cast the is cast incredible. Is
0: fantastic. Rebecca Ferguson, who was so good and Emily Road Blunt Nation, and Emily Blunt. I love Emily fantastic. Blunt and Justin Thoreau. Justin
1: Thoreau and Luke Evans, Edgar Ramirez. It's a very good cast. That said, you are there's, there's some risk here. There's absolutely. I like risk. that. I admire it.
0: You know, I gotta I gotta take some chances. You gotta take some chances. So, how about you?
1: What you got? Uh, I, it's funny. I feel like I'm taking a little chance here for sort of the opposite. I feel very strong about the filmmaker choices. The cast of my movie is the part that's giving me Ooh. pause. It is a movie also based on a book, I believe. It is called The Lost City of Z. And the reason I'm very interested in this one is again the the director. It's the writer and director. It's James Gray, who's one of my Favorite filmmakers, and this is really his first chance to make something bigger. At least as it sounds like it's gotta be bigger, because it's sort of a exploration movie, right? The plot description uh is in 1925, the legendary British explorer Percy Fawcett ventured into the Amazon jungle in search of a fabled civilization. He never returned. Dot dot dot. So all that sounds great. I love the idea of James Gray making a bigger movie he's tended to make you know very small wonderful character pieces like two lovers uh and the yards and great movies but you know very small this you know so this seems like he's you know busting out doing something bigger expanding his vision which i'm very excited to see the cast is uh, Charlie Hunnam is the lead role, okay. is, and Sienna Miller is the other lead role. Ooh,
0: and... they are kind of like the equivalent of one another, though. <laughs> They're yeah, both like you kind of maybe forget to have what they look like.
1: Yeah, and then and then Robert Pattinson, who actually that's more promising to me, yeah. and Tom Holland, who is the uh, the new, new Spider Man. So, okay, so. I th- I'm hoping. I don't know for sure, but I'm hoping Charlie Hunnam at least can talk in his British accent. Because if he's talking with an American accent, this is this is over before it even starts. But I'm hoping that it's that he can be British at least. That's my that's my, I'm pinning a lot of hope, like a lot of hope, Allison, on the fact that he doesn't have to use a bad American accent. But I, I love James Gray, and I, that premise sounds really intriguing too for a James Gray movie. So yeah. I'm just. A little risky choice, too, not a slam dunk. The other one I think we would both agree, though, is Gods of Egypt, oh, for of sure. Course. It's Number one to all movie. of the Oscars. Yeah, for sure, it's... totally. And if you don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> Google Gods of Egypt trailer and enjoy, because you will. I promise you, you will enjoy that trailer. There's no way not to, and no way for that not to be the best movie of 2016. We're going to skip the new releases and head right to Behind the Eight Ball, which is where we round up the uh, the new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations and one film chosen blindly by number from our My List, which is now getting even more difficult because Netflix, in their infinite wisdom, decided to eliminate the numbers in your My List. If you've been on your Netflix lately, you'll see that there are now no numbers your my list count down yes i know so don't so expect in the future a lot of nothing is ever going to be over like thirty. yeah Yeah, it's going to be they're going to be low numbers from now on because we have to count these by by hand which is really annoying allison it's up to you you want to go first you want me to go first
0: i want to go first all
1: right so let's start here with three new releases
0: okay first up is a movie i've already talked about in the last episode but i wanted to mention it because it is new to netflix that is tangerine one of the great pleasures, the kind of like small indie pleasures of this year. And if you haven't had a chance to watch it in the theaters, now it is streaming on Netflix and you should check it out. Also new to Netflix is a movie I've really been curious about. And I'm happy that it's on there now and I can see it. Black Coal, Thin Ice, 2014 Chinese thriller from Yao Yin Yan. Uh, It won the Golden Bear at Berlin last year. It was kind of, I think, a controversial choice. But it is a Chinese detective noir set in northern China. And uh, that sounds great to me. Uh, Crime thriller set amidst coal shipments in northern (laughs) China. Um, So that is Black Coal Thin Ice on Netflix. And finally, new to Fandor and already on Amazon Prime is Christmas Again, which is also, I think, currently in theaters, at least for a short run. It is a little indie about a lonesome Christmas tree vendor in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, my old neighborhood, uh, directed by Charles Pokel, who actually did this job for several years, was a Christmas tree vendor in, in the streets of New York and Kentucker Oddly, filmmaker and actor stars as the main character. And it is a nice little film about what it feels like to be glum during the holidays, uh, and to work a job of, of Christmas tree sales. And, um, Cinematographer Sean Price Williams. He does a lot of great work. And Robert Green, another filmmaker, edited. So a lot of great people involved in that. Christmas again on Fandor and Amazon Prime.
1: Okay, two listener recommendations.
0: Okay, first up, we have one from Eric, who writes, I just wanted to recommend you a film I came across on Hulu's Criterion section, Elevator to the Gallows. Directed by Louis Malle, the film is an extremely stylish and beautiful noir, which surprised me since the only Malle film I'd seen previously was My Dinner with Andre, a film not really remembered for its directorial flair. I don't want to reveal anything about the story since I went in completely fresh, so I'll just say it's kind of like the plots of Double Indemnity and Badlands intertwined. Plus, it has great performances all around, especially from Jean Moreau and the rare film score from Miles Davis. And also, this is me speaking, Elevator (laughs) the Gallows. That's such a great title. You can't go wrong with a title like that. Um, So thank you, Eric, for that. And a short recommendation from Brian, who sent us on Twitter and then sent us an email as well, and who points out that Medicine for Melancholy, a movie he just saw last night, is now available on Netflix Instant. And he says, it is a really good movie. I would second that. It's, it's a great one. And the director is finally making a second movie. So look for Barry Jenkins, I think, in the next
1: year. Thank you for that, Brian. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your unnumbered
0: my list. You gave me number 23, and when I counted down, sorry, they'll be lower next time. (laughs) I found Cheatin', which is the latest film from Bill Plimpton, his seventh feature length animated feature. He funded it in part on Kickstarter, and is apparently about a beautiful woman who, while strolling through a carnival, ends up, end up being rescued by a handsome, muscular man. They get married, and then there are various threats of infidelity in their marriage. But I'm sure, like all Bill Plimpton things, it is grotesque and beautiful and surreal. Um, but I always like Bill Plimpton, who is a true, unique talent. And I'm hoping to get to that one ev- eventually. Okay, Matt, are you ready?
1: Yes. Okay, three new releases. First up on Hulu and Amazon, a whole bunch of films from the... Friday the 13th franchise this year for Halloween I watched and ranked all 12 films in this series about Jason Voorhees professional zombie serial killer and amateur hockey goalie and while a fair number of these are pretty terrible there are a couple that are really good I like part four which is inaccurately titled the final chapter that one is a very straight ahead horror movie with great gore effects and I really liked part six, which is called Jason Lives, which is more of a horror comedy. It kind of plays into the absurdity that the franchise had kind of gathered by that point. And it's almost like a Scream-esque Slasher genre deconstruction It's actually really funny at times While still being pretty scary That was definitely like the discovery for me Of watching them all I had never seen that one That was my favorite of the series And my most pleasant surprise So those are the two I would definitely recommend For horror fans Friday the 13th part 4 And Friday the 13th part 6 Next up A movie we have discussed at length Before on SVU Michael Mann's Manhunter the original adaptation of the Hannibal Lecter novel Red Dragon from 1986 with Brian Cox as Lecter and William Peterson as Will Graham. If you're interested in hearing more, you can uh, find that discussion on SVU number 65. We talked about that movie, and we talked about, I think, just about every other Hannibal Lecter movie and the recent Hannibal TV show. That was like an all-Hannibal podcast. So if that sounds like your speed, check that out. SVU number 65, Manhunter, is now on Amazon Prime. Finally, I wanted to give a shout out to a relatively new streaming site that I don't think we've discussed on the show before and I've been using and enjoying and it's totally free. You don't have to subscribe or sign up. It's all ad supported and that's Shout Factory TV. And that's the streaming site connected to the great DVD Blu-ray company Shout Factory. And if you know the name already Shout Factory, you know they kind of do genre stuff from film and television, cult stuff. That's sort of their milieu. They're also now the official distributor and I think even owners of all things MST3K. And they have a massive section just of MST3K episodes to choose from, which is really cool. I was just watching Mitchell over on on Shout Factory TV just last week. And they don't have a gigantic selection of thousands of movies. I think they rotate stuff in and out. But they have several unique and very cool features in addition to the fact that it's totally free. They have this thing called VHS Vault where some of the movies are presented – As if they were on VHS. They're sort of taken straight from VHS tapes, so they're pan and scanned and they're a little grainy and fuzzy, and the tracking kind of futzes once in a while, which is great for setting the mood for the right kind of old horror movie. And they also have something that I don't, maybe there are other streaming sites that do this yet. I haven't really seen it, with very few exceptions. They have director's commentaries for a bunch of the movies, which I love director's commentaries. You know, not everything, but there are select titles with director's commentaries. I hope that's a trend that increases as we move towards streaming. So more streaming sites need a director's commentary option. But until then, that's my recommendation. Shout Factory TV. It's a new streaming site, totally free. Uh, You don't have to sign up. It's just ad supported. Kudos to them on a, a really nice site.
0: All right, two listener
1: recommendations. Our first year comes from Jim in Bethpage, New York. He says, I would... I'm, he wants us to talk about it, Allison, but we're going to use it as a recommendation. He says, I would really enjoy a discussion on Birdman sometime in the next year on FilmSpotting SVU." This is a movie I did not care for when I first saw it, similar to your reactions, but it really does benefit from multiple viewings. Birdman is packed with specific visual details and very nuanced performances that reveal a lot about each character with each subsequent viewing. I'm curious to see if you and Allison have a similar reaction and if you would agree that Michael Keaton's performance is perfect. And that's from Jim in Bethpage, New York. Of course, Birdman is currently available for rental in a lot of different places. Last year's Oscar winner for Best Picture. Allison, would you be interested in doing a Birdman podcast somewhere down the line? I think so. I liked it. There I, you go. Apparently, Jim, I, you get, I don't know where you're getting your news, Jim. Yeah. I, I thought it was okay. And uh, seeing it, a se- I've already seen it twice. I saw it a second time, relatively, you know, in its first release. And I, I can't, I, I'm sorry, Jim, it didn't really blow me away on second viewing, but I would be, I would be up for talking about it. But maybe somewhere uh, next year, we will make that a listener's choice option for uh, an upcoming show. So thank you, Jim, for writing in. Next up, we have an email from JM in Vancouver who writes Dear SVU team, First of all, thank you for reading a previous listener recommendation of mine. This time I'd like to mainly recommend Joseph Gordon-Levitt's variety show, Hit Record on TV. I hadn't heard of it until it was recommended to me through Netflix's algorithm, but I was shocked how little critical promotion the show has gotten. It is a wholly unique experiment utilizing crowdsourced content to explore broader topics with intimate projects. Suitably, the show includes live video from Levitz's audience and a makeshift editing style to properly emphasize the complete merging of disparate perspectives into a single composition. All the project's... Joseph Gordon Levitt features are unique enough to justify their inclusion, even if they don't all suit your expectations. Every episode is unpredictable and frantic, but all the while kept lovingly quaint by Levitt's adoration of fun. As someone typically focused on dark existential narratives, I was happy to observe, so much so I intend to participate in future hitrecord.org projects open to anyone's creative contribution. Thank you once again for the show. I'm excited to hear your take on Master of None as well as all future episodes from jm in vancouver hit record it's a show i've never seen it i know it's on netflix now but i think the reason it's hasn't gotten a lot of attention it's on a little network right pivot, pivot which yeah, is a which pretty is... small upstart network uh, that's probably the reason it just hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet but thank you jm we're gonna i'm gonna have to check it out it sounds it does sound intriguing the fact that it is sort of crowdsourced is certainly the uh, the appealing part there
0: all right well one from your my list
1: you mercifully gave me the low number of seven uh, and this time on my list, number seven is Bushido Man, colon, Seven Deadly Battles. Uh, the plot description is, Warrior Toramaru must adjust his fighting skills and later his eating regimen mm. to defeat a series of martial arts masters in seven epic deadly battles. And Allison, as far as I'm concerned, there's not nearly enough martial arts movies about eating regimens.
0: I mean what does he I have I, no I, idea I'm just i you have know, no kidding all idea. hard boiled eggs and it will enable me to win in battle I have
1: no idea this is on here because Evan uh, Sathoff who is a writer on birth movies death tweets under the name at Sam underscore strange a friend of mine We have we have similar tastes in these sorts of action movies and he recently tweeted about the movie watching it on Netflix he liked it and usually to me, if Evan tweets about an action movie and says he liked it, it's at least worth a look. So that is why I put it on my high list. So there it is. Bushido Man, colon, seven deadly battles and eating regiments. Allison, we, uh, we we don't have listener's choice options. No,
0: normally this is the part where we talk about the next episode. Right. But we, come, we are at an impasse here. Because the future is somewhat
1: uncertain. It was so appropriate that this is the 100th episode. It's almost like we're ending this big anniversary <laughs> on a cliffhanger.
0: Um, Matt Singer will be taking a little time off. Uh, he is about to become a dad, yeah. as he mentioned.
1: Not much, because we record biweekly, so it won't be, bi-weekly. won't be too much. But
0: uh, I will be here. I will be bringing in some guest hosts to fill in. But we decided that we wouldn't do the usual listener's choice votes this time because didn't want to inflict that on guests who would right. be kind enough to just help right. us.
1: So And so. when I've done guest hosts in the past, usually I let, I let them at least help choose the movie. So it'll probably be a guest host choice review on the next episode, maybe the next two episodes.
0: Yes. So we'll give Matt some time to spend with his soon-to-be newborn child, and uh, I will have some, I'm sure, very... Hopefully, very fun, interesting. Guest if you get who you want to get, it's going
1: to be pretty awesome. I think so. no one's going to want me to come back. Yes. Uh, I will be banished permanently <laughs> once these guest hosts show up.
0: Uh, but um, and uh, either way, I think that you know, I'm sure everyone listening <laughs> wishes you well. Thank you. This new excursion into fatherhood. Yes, it'll, I'm sure it'll be very. Uh, I'm excited for you guys. Yes,
1: I'm sure the next time you hear me, I'll sound very exhausted and uh it'll be very exciting it'll be fun and it'll give me a whole new perspective on these movies to i'll be talking about i don't know uh, what do kids watch sesame street and i'll be recommending like uh elmo's first adventure or something you'll
0: Stuff. be like all i've watched is right. doc doc mcstuffins for uh <laughs> the past year so, so that's my recommendation
1: <laughs> read them and weep, take it or leave it buddy yeah so it'll be fun oh god Well, until we speak to you again, make sure you're following us on Twitter, at FilmspottingSVU. We have no listener's choice to uh, vote on right now, but make sure you're following us over there. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. Our remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And Allison will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review she and her guest pick, but... In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer. And once again, the show's Twitter is at SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice, although there isn't going to be one next time. And where we share lots of streaming suggestions from ourselves and from you guys, the SVU listeners. And hey, this is the 100th episode of SVU. If you enjoy the show, if you have enjoyed the show, if you continue to enjoy the show, how about going over to iTunes? Give us uh, five stars. Write a little review. It takes five minutes. Come on, think of the hours—a hundred plus hours of entertainment we have given you. How many recommendations have we given you? We ask nothing, nothing, nada. Do this one thing for us. It's the hundredth episode. Come on, do it, do it. For film spotting, SVU, I'm Matt Singer, and I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.